Welcome to the STEM Sessions podcast. I'm your host, Jarl Cody. I don't usually discuss current events on this podcast. Typically, I just don't have anything to add that hasn't already been offered by countless other authors or analysts. Though, mostly it's because my production of this podcast is simply too slow to discuss the news. And therefore, at the beginning, I decided not to fall into the cycle of relying on current events commentary to drive listeners to this podcast. Then again, I haven't really done anything else to lure listeners here either. And to be fair, this news is about a month old at this point, so does it still count as a current event? That said, the event I discuss here really got under my skin, both as an engineer and a taxpayer. So I suppose this is a rant of sorts, though I try to balance the rant by providing other research. It's not a technical analysis of the event, mind you. That's been done elsewhere. Instead, I share what my teams have done when faced with similar choices. I also discuss the relationship between engineers, our customers, and the requirements they give us, and why, even though we engineers are typically smart, we don't always know better. This is the STEM Sessions Podcast, Episode 19, Inconvenient Requirements. In November 2021, Elaine Thomas pled guilty in U.S. District Court to major fraud on the United States. Ms. Thompson is the former director of metallurgy at Bradkin, Inc. Bradkin is the leading supplier of cast high-yield steel for U.S. Navy submarines. Ms. Thompson will be sentenced in February 2022, facing up to a year in prison and a fine of up to $1 million. Bradkin, for its part, has entered a settlement of nearly $11 million. So what is this major fraud that has a company paying $11 million and a retired employee facing a year in prison? Bradkin produces steel to be used in the hulls of U.S. naval submarines. As part of the certification process, the steel is tested to ensure it meets minimum strength and toughness requirements so that the submarine will maintain structural integrity during collisions and other wartime events. Ms. Thomas, in her role as Director of Metallurgy, falsified the results of these tests, changing the results from failing to passing. Not just once or twice, but over 240 production lots of steel and over the course of 30 years. In all cases, the steel was delivered to the naval contractors as if nothing was wrong. In the company's defense, it appears no one else was involved. The fraud was discovered in May 2017 when a lab employee was reviewing legacy test cards and noted they had been altered. Bradkin is still on the hook, of course, but the company's openness when the test cards were discovered is likely why its settlement was civil and not criminal. Judgment on Ms. Thomas, however, is criminal. There's no justification for falsifying test results once, let alone 240 times across three decades, but I can almost understand the reasoning for doing so once. Let's say you have a long history of your product always passing its qualification tests, then you randomly experience a failure. And let's say the failure is only by a few percentage points. You double check your processes, your equipment, your raw materials, everything is as it should be. You suspect the product is good and it's most likely a testing error. 
The correct action would be to run the test again, but the schedule is tight, so you fudge the results and push out the product, promising yourself if it happens again, you'll do a deeper investigation. Like I said, while that reasoning makes some sense, the scenario I just laid out is still completely unacceptable. Instead, the only course of action is to bring up the issue with your team lead, the program lead, subject matter experts, whoever is needed to be in the loop. They may decide the program should eat the delay in schedule and retest the product. They may decide to ask the customer for a waiver or other authorization to ship. Either way, the situation is above board and everyone agrees with the path forward. I've worked on numerous programs where last minute gotchas pop up. They're not uncommon, but we're always open and work through it as a team. So what was the motivation behind falsifying test reports for 30 years? According to the indictment, the Navy believes Ms. Thomas, quote, knowingly devised and executed a scheme with the intent to defraud the United States Navy and to obtain money and property by means of materially false and fraudulent pretenses and representations, unquote. Countering this claim, Ms. Thomas, through her lawyer, explained while she, quote, took shortcuts and made material misrepresentations, she never intended to compromise the integrity of any material, and this offense is unique in that it was neither motivated by greed nor any desire for personal enrichment, unquote. For the time being, let's take Ms. Thomas at her word and assume neither greed nor personal enrichment, such as bonuses for beating schedule, was the motivation. That leaves laziness and arrogance. Laziness because she continued to falsify test results for 30 years instead of fixing the problem. She was the director of metallurgy, a position with pull, a position that could have easily enacted change and arrogance because she felt the requirement her steel was failing, uh, testing the material down to minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 73 Celsius, was, quote, stupid, unquote. That's the word she chose to use in court. Speaking as a mechanical engineer in the aerospace and defense industry and one who takes a lot of pride in the hardware we produce, this brush-off of a requirement really pisses me off. I've worked on defense contracts for over 20 years, and for half of that, I've been directly involved in negotiating, defining, and allocating requirements. And that experience has showed me that many of the requirements flowed to us are stupid and overly constraining and make our job more difficult. But you know what? We don't get to ignore them just because we think we know better. When a customer, the U.S. Department of Defense in these cases, sends a request for quote or RFQ to its contractors, the RFQ is accompanied by a requirements document. The level of detail and definition of that document varies from RFQ to RFQ. The contractor reviews the requirements and develops a bid based on the requirements and follow-up questions. After winning the contract, systems engineers review the requirements in detail and begin allocating those requirements to the pertinent subsystem teams. During the requirements review, it's common to find missing incomplete or confusing requirements. It's the engineer's job to work with the customer to resolve these issues. You may also find requirements that are over-constraining or contradicting. That's also the job of the engineering team to resolve those issues with the customer. 
In the case of over-constraining requirements, we'll ask for a change using reduced schedule, reduced cost, simplified testing, or cross-program compatibility as justification. An example might be that the operating or storage temperature range is so wide, it precludes the use of industrial-rated electrical components like resistors or capacitors, and instead requires military-rated components. Industrial-rated components are widely available and comparatively inexpensive. Military-rated components are oftentimes made to order and expensive because there is no continuous demand for them. We present the customer with the opportunity to reduce cost and risk to schedule by modifying the temperature ranges. The customer either agrees to change the requirement or says industrial components are acceptable, but the requirement needs to remain for other aspects of the design. Or they tell us no, the requirement needs to stay as is, and they don't need to give a justification for their answer. Additionally, requirements and the results of verification testing are the first artifacts you look at during a failure analysis or when determining if a legacy system will work on other platforms or future programs. Accurate traceability is therefore vital. Poor traceability could have negative ripple effects down the line after the program's engineers have all moved on to other work. So why does the Navy invoke seemingly over-the-top or stupid requirements? In April 1963, the USS Thresher, a nuclear submarine, was lost during deep dive testing east of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. After experiencing a mechanical failure, it was unable to surface. Its wreckage was found 8,000 feet below the surface. All 129 crew members and shipyard personnel aboard the Thresher died. It was the second deadliest sub-incident on record. Subsequent analysis determined implosion occurred at 2,400 feet or 730 meters below the surface. As is Navy tradition, the Thresher was never decommissioned and remains on eternal patrol. As a result, the Navy created a set of standards named SubSafe to make sure this loss would never be repeated. SubSafe has a simple doctrine. In the event of any problem, the submarine must be able to reach the surface. It impacts all areas of the submarine life cycle, design, material selection, fabrication, testing, and maintenance. Certification gets as specific as recording the source of the alloy for every piece of equipment that's subsafe compliant. Prior to the implementation of subsafe, the U.S. Navy lost 16 subs, nuclear and otherwise, including the Thresher. Since the implementation of SubSafe, no submarine built to those standards has been lost. It's very similar to the difference between airborne and space requirements in aerospace engineering. We have typical airborne requirements and we have typical space requirements. Compared to each other, space hardware seems over-designed. Space requirements are much stricter because you only get one shot. If it doesn't survive launch or fails after deployment, you've wasted years of money and caused significant setbacks in technology development. Requirements are written and flowed down for specific reasons, and those reasons do not need to be divulged by the customer. As the engineer, you may not always understand those reasons or agree with them. There may not even be a technical reason the requirement is written as it is. The requirement may be out of date, 
or it may be a carryover from another program and not directly applicable to the new one, or it's written out of an abundance of caution. In this case of the submarine steel, it's very possible the minus 100 degrees F requirement includes significant margin of safety, which is why no failures in the field were ever reported. And the Navy confirmed this during follow-up testing, which showed the structural integrity of vessels weren't compromised. But you can't rely on dumb luck to save your butt. As an engineer, even if you know that a requirement has a significant built-in margin of safety, to the point you feel the requirement is stupid, it is not your call to ignore it or falsify test results. That stupid requirement may be in place to prevent catastrophes and loss of life. Thank you for listening to the STEM Sessions podcast. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Jarl Cody. Here at the STEM Sessions, we strive to share accurate and complete information, but we also encourage you to do your own research on the topic we discussed to confirm the accuracy of what we've presented. Corrections are always welcome. Show notes, contact information, and details of our other activities can be found on our website, thestemsessions.com. If you received value from this episode and wish to give some back, please visit thestemsessions.com slash value for value for ways to support the podcast. Finally, please remember STEM is not a tool exclusive to experts, policymakers, and talking heads. Every presenter is susceptible to unconscious and sometimes deliberate bias, so always verify what you read and what you're told. Until the next one, stay curious.